tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to the Feast's Cooking Show of the Air, a radio program devoted to bringing you the very best from today's world of cooking. In this year of 1945, as the war in Europe winds to a close, both Canadian and American homes face the continued challenges of wartime restrictions. Many meat products, sugar, milk, and butter are still hard to find. But everywhere, whether in the newspaper or on the radio, there's a can-do spirit where new products and new recipes are welcomed as part of an ongoing patriotic war effort in both Canada and the United States. Today on the Feast Radio Hour, we'll take a look at how the war has changed the way both Canada and the U.S. eat in 1945. The growth of formal governmental regulations for nutrition, a newfound patriotism in recipes and cookbooks, often designed for the thousands of new women arriving in North America as war brides, and even how the technologies of World War II may slowly be starting to find their way into the kitchen. Now, food rationing has been a fact of life in both countries for several years now. But government controls on what people eat isn't just a question of what has been taken away, but also a result of new science recommending what should be included on the dinner table. The first federal guidelines in Canada recommending what was involved in a healthy diet, known as Canada's official food rules, were only introduced to the general public in 1942. Based on new knowledge about the role of vitamins, calories, and protein intake, as well as startling results from local surveys, indicating that few Canadians were getting enough to eat. In a late 1930s survey of Toronto, only 3% of families were found to have met basic caloric intake on a daily basis. So for the last three years, Canada has urged its citizens to eat healthy and to eat more. New guidelines ask Canadian adults to consume at least a pint of milk per day, as well as at least one serving of fruit, vegetables, and meat, along with a serving of cereal, in addition to four slices of buttered bread. And that's just for one day. But in a time of war, with things like steak and butter heavily rationed, how to get enough to eat? 
Although governments have put out a wealth of pamphlets and billboards recently on nutrition and how to keep up with rationing, the material is still a little dry. To jazz things up a bit, both the U.S. and Canada have turned to culinary celebrities, women who have already made a name for themselves as master homemakers and food mavens. Betty Crocker's weekly radio program, Cooking School of the Air, has been a favorite in U.S. households for over 20 years, and she's embraced the hearty wartime spirit as much as anyone. Meanwhile, Anne Adam, writer of the popular Today's Food column in Toronto's Globe and Mail, has also taken to the radio waves. Her cooking school of the air has made her a household name in the Canadian North. Both women have become major public advocates for rationing and the government's recommendations on nutrition. But their audiences aren't just Canadians and Americans. As the war draws to a close, both Canada and the U.S. happily await the return of their fighting men. But there's another group that's headed their way. Women from Britain, Germany, Australia, and beyond fell in love with those dashing soldiers from North America and tied the knot. Known as war brides, these ladies slowly have been making their way to their husbands' homelands. Let's hear a bit more about some of the ladies coming to the U.S. all the way from Australia. Here comes the bride. 10,000 times down under American servicemen have married Australian girls, and they formed a club for mutual help as they await transportation to their new homeland. Our soldiers came, these gals saw, and love conquered. As victory in Europe grows closer, more and more of these ladies have been able to make the journey across the waves to the shores of North America. With estimates of over 70,000 women and children destined for the U.S. in the next few years, and almost 50,000 en route to Canada, U.S. Congress is hoping to pass the U.S. War Brides Act by the end of 1945, which would allow these new families to reunite more easily. The already established Canadian Wives Bureau has set up shop in London in order to help make arrangements for those wishing to make the journey to Canada. Another party of Canadian servicemen's wives and kiddies are off to their new homes across the sea. By boat train, they leave London for the port of embarkation. Since 1939, some 24,000 British girls have married Canadians. 3,000 of them already have been sent to Canada by the Department of Immigration. Young sons and daughters of the Dominion will grow up in the Canadian way of life for which Daddy is fighting on many a shell-torn field. It's a way to a new life in the land of opportunity. To her new citizens, Canada extends the hearty hand of welcome. Adjusting to a new life can always be difficult, particularly when your husband is still fighting overseas. With little help from Betty Crocker and Ad Adam, not to mention the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Canadian Council on Nutrition, these war brides have been encouraged to embrace the food and cooking styles of their new homes. After all, by 1945, cooking is a patriotic activity. Rationing and conserving food has developed into a tried and true home front way of contributing to the war effort. Ration stretching cookbooks can be sold to help raise funds for patriotic causes, and recipes that help cooks stretch limited supplies of milk, butter, and cheese 
often known as recipes for victory, are published weekly in local newspapers. New products that help cooks stretch limited supplies are flying off the shelves, like corn syrup and saccharin, an artificial sweetener. Two easy ways to replace the still-rationed sugar. Some popular recipes of today are just old-fashioned standbys in disguise. One, known today often as Canadian War Cake, an eggless, milkless, butterless, and sugar-stretching dessert is just an old trick from the Depression era. A steamed cake known for, well, let's say it's density. We've seen requests for this dessert in newspapers from Vancouver to Winnipeg. Those friendly Canadians, part of the National War Services, have even published an entire cookbook for the numerous British women who are making their way to Toronto, Edmonton, Montreal, and other places in Canada. The Canadian Cookbook for British Brides, published just this year in 1945, provides a number of tips and tricks for the British woman adjusting to life in her new home. Handy advice reminds the new homemakers that every Canadian appreciates a good pie now and again, and that pancakes can and should be served at any meal. Just don't forget the maple syrup. The Canadian cookbook for British brides is a reminder both of continued rationing, but also of some cultural differences between the two nations in the 1940s. New brides are reminded that afternoon tea is not a standard part of a Canadian's day, and interestingly, that sausage and fish should rarely be served in the home. But what about those newly arrived ladies down in the United States? Well, who better than the first lady of American cooking, Betty Crocker herself? Now, Betty has been a staple of the airway since the 1920s. Her cooking school, broadcast directly into American homes, remains one of the most popular shows of today. And that title, Cooking Show of the Air, is no joke. In its first year on the air, over 230 graduates sent in cooking reports to be graded. By the beginning of World War II, the Home Services Department had hired over 20 home economists to help mark recipes and culinary reports sent in by aspiring bakers and cooks all over the country. Betty's recipes have a USDA stamp of approval, helping each home make do with the available foodstuffs during the war. Let's go now to the expert herself. the leader of this band of gallant home front women is Betty Crocker, who comes to you now with a delightful account of one of our young war brides. For there is no group of women in America today who are having so hectic a time as these young wives of our servicemen. And of course, Betty Crocker has some recipes and menu suggestions planned especially for these young homemakers. But they are suggestions that are sure to be welcomed by homemakers of any age. So here she is, your Betty Crocker. Well, today I'm going to give you a menu for the sort of homey meal every bride ought to know how to prepare for her husband. Of course, when you think of preparing a meal that will go to a man's heart, you think of steak. For all men seem to love steak. So I'm going to give you a recipe for a kind of steak you can all manage to serve with food supplies as they are now. We call it emergency steak. And it's just as tasty and tender and appetizing as any tender. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. 
based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Deloin or Porterhouse. Serve it sizzling hot from the broiler or pan, attractively garnished with green parsley or green carrot tops or celery tops, and a few bright red radishes as a bit of color in contrast to the juicy brown steak. No one could ask for a more delicious dinner meat. Really, everyone who's tried this emergency steak is crazy about it. Thank you, Betty. And now we bring you a look at the world of tomorrow. We're all familiar with the numerous new gadgets and gizmos the war has provided, but most of these have gone straight to the front lines. But recently, experts have revealed that we may soon be seeing some of those advances right here in the home. From new packaging of food, including more durable frozen products, to new labor-saving devices, the kitchen of 1955 may look very different from the kitchen of 1945. We've recently learned of a new device that uses radar magnetrons to actually cook your food. Called the microwave oven, this device will take technology meant for the battlefield into your very own kitchen. Companies are hoping to have them on the shelves by 1947, but it's expected that these early models will cost a pretty penny. Current price estimates for the first models are over $2,000. But this microwave oven could be just the first of many new technologies in the kitchen of tomorrow. We now take you to a segment from the popular show The March of Time, where we imagine what the kitchen of the future just might look like. Time marches on. U.S. housewives have heard many a tall tale about the labor-saving wonders of the mechanical kitchen of tomorrow. Tonight, the March of Time brings you an imaginary preview of Messrs. Mulliken and Hand's imaginary kitchen of tomorrow. Imagine a salesman of tomorrow knocking at the door, the old-fashioned kitchen door. He's equipped with a complete model of the kitchen of tomorrow. Yes? What is it? You may well ask, madam, what it is. It is a kitchen made entirely of glass, nylon, glass, plastic, synthetic rubber, and glass. It is completely prefabricated, shipped with one complete master plumber of tomorrow to connect it up. Well, it sounds wonderful. Uh, How does it work? Why, radar, of course, with a dash of electronics. There you'll sit in your kitchen, comfortable in a luxurious operator's booth, sealed off from noise, dirt, cooking odors, <laughs> and also sealed off from the newest offspring in a self-rocking rocket cradle equipped with automatic diaper changer. Everything is within easy reach of your giant whirling 105-millimeter twin-spout water faucet. Gee, and no floors to clean. Exactly, madam. Drop the cup, strain a floor two feet. Result, children's wading pool. Drop it seven feet, adult swimming pool. Watch out for the automatic disposal button when swimmers are in pool, or quick freeze the pool for ice skating. Ice skating in the kitchen? Oh, what'll I think of next? And 
Thus, Shavel and Company's Kitchen of Tomorrow, an absurdity, reminds you as housewives that things tomorrow won't be quite so different as some people may be expecting. Or will they? Excuse me for a moment while I take out my victory curls. Now, I may still be waiting on my kitchen floor tub, but between the 1940s and 1950s, a huge revolution did happen in the North American kitchen. While the 1940s may have been a time of rationing and make-do-and-mend, the 1950s were a time of unlimited prosperity, allowing more North Americans to access many new technologies fresh on the market, particularly those designed for the kitchen. Now, just as an example, in 1956, GM's Frigidaire debuted its Kitchen of the Future, which featured an ultrasonic dishwasher, electric recipe file, a self-organizing refrigerator, a telephone capable of taking down written messages, an electronic self-cleaning oven, and an automatic washing machine. Many items that would have been completely foreign to a 1940s kitchen, but are common sights in kitchens even today. Of course, the 1950s also saw the birth of the true television era, and the home cook now didn't just have to listen to Betty Crocker or Ann Adam, they could watch them too. But who exactly were they watching? Betty Crocker, once the second most recognized woman in America, after Eleanor Roosevelt, never actually existed. Whether speaking over the radio or writing a weekly recipe column, both Betty Crocker and Ann Adam, along with a number of other similarly invented homemakers in both the U.S. and Canada, had been a convenient way to offer authoritative advice to women. While the image of Betty Crocker was an invention of Minnesota's Washburn-Crosby Company, a forerunner of General Mills, other fictional advice givers, like Ann Adam, were adopted pseudonyms, in Ann's case by the Toronto home economist Catherine Caldwell Bailey. Not just limited by a cookbook, with their featured columns in newspapers and their national radio cooking shows, their advice regularly reached millions of North Americans. Already familiar with being serious brand spokeswoman, now Betty Crocker, interestingly, never used anything but General Mills in her recipes, it's easy to see why both were recruited during World War II to help support U.S. and Canadian war efforts, of not just new government nutritional standards or rationing, but also as a way of introducing American or Canadian cultural ideals to thousands of recently arrived war brides. The advice given by homemaking celebrities like Betty Crocker and Ann Adam in reality represented a fleet of home economists, responsible for developing recipes or typing up homemaking advice. But when you sat down to read your morning paper with Ann Adams' Today's Food column, it was only Ann's name you'd see. Likewise, these were the secret workers behind the soothing voice of Betty Crocker, recommending gold metal flour or providing helpful tips on how to stretch your sugar ration in her weekly radio show. And interestingly, when the television era began, the fiction continued, and the image of Betty Crocker continued as well. Several actresses would go on to play Betty on screen. But even then, many women would be shocked to find out Betty wasn't a real person. Although recasting a particular character isn't necessarily all that unusual at the time. When I was a kid, I was so confused about the new Darren on Bewitched. I'll always be true to you, old Darren. This may date me, but seriously, if you don't know what I mean, try googling this. They totally changed Darrens on us, and they thought we wouldn't notice. 
But the era of the radio cooking show between the 1920s and 1940s, with hosts like Betty Crocker, saw the birth of the original lifestyle brand, portraying an ideal of Canadian or American home life, able to be molded by companies and governments alike to provide messages and advice to millions of households, a reach arguably longer and broader than any newspaper, government pamphlet, or even cookbook. Now, we'll actually be doing a much longer episode about both Betty Crocker and Anne Adam later on. There's so much to get into with both of them. But for now, that's all for the Feast Radio Hour this week. Now, if you'd like a recipe for Betty Crocker's emergency steak, we'll put that up on our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. And if you'd like to learn more about Betty Crocker, Anne Adam, or other food cultures in Canada and America during World War II, there are hundreds of books and websites out there. A few good ones to start with are Ian Mosby's Food Will Win the War, which is a great look at the Canadian home front and food, as well as Susan Marks' Finding Betty Crocker, The Secret Life of America's First Lady of Food. The Kitchen Sisters podcast also did a great episode about life on the home front during World War II. We'll also put up a link to that episode online. We'll also put up links to the promotional video for GM Frigidaire's Kitchen of the Future from the 1950s, so you can take a look at the self-organizing refrigerator for yourself. Today's episode included material from Betty Crocker's Cooking School of the Air, as well as clips from the 1940 productions of The Alan Young Show, Vic and Sadie, and The March of Time. Other material from the Canadian Army Newsreel, courtesy of the CBC. Music featured today included a recorded live broadcast of New Year's Eve dance party of 1945. If you'd like to help keep the feast on the air, please consider becoming a member on Patreon. You can find all the details at www.patreon.com slash feastpodcast. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Research help by Megan Kirby. Technical direction by Mike Port, who spent this week cutting out caramel letters for our upcoming Futurist Feast, which is going to be held this weekend in Toronto. If you haven't grabbed a ticket yet, you can still find a few online via our website. That's all for us this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another great meal from history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired.
based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.